And welcome. You're listening to The Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM. It is uh, uh, with some regret that I announced that we have to yet again talk about uh, pipelines all show. But uh, <laughs> despite that regret, uh, we actually have a really good reason, uh, not because uh, I have more sarcastic comments to make or, or uh, Stefan or Dave have more insights. Uh, but last week we were talking about uh, um, some of the wonderful reporting of a Canadian journalist uh, working as the managing editor for the National Observer, Mike D'Souza. And then lo and behold, it turns out he's in Toronto. We got him. Yes. So exactly. Mike D'Souza is here. Um, so Stefan has outlined uh, quite a thorough set of questions uh, because we uh, are so happy to have our very rare, actual, legit, real certified journalist in the, in the building. <laughs> we uh, have someone who knows things. That's right. And uh, not someone who plays one on TV for an hour Friday. So um, <laughs> well, there's no filming here. There's no filming. No. Uh, so uh, the, with respect to that, we're going to have a, a low commentary show. And that means, of course, that we'll have a low Saren show. So I'm going to be more or less uh, piping up now, unless I have some irresistible sarcastic comments to make. I'm now going to pass it to Dave. Dave is going to do a bit of an overview, and then Stefan will largely be running an interview with Mike. Mike has very kindly and very graciously agreed to be here with us pretty much for the full show. So uh, I'm now going to stop talking. Uh, Dave, can you please set up uh, Mike D'Souza's interview for us and talk a little bit about uh, what's what are we talking about here? So yes, as you said, Mike D'Souza is the managing editor for the National Observer, focusing on an energy and environment policy. Through his targeted access to information requests, he exposed a conflict of interest in the Federal Review of the Energy East Pipeline Project, garnering him a Canadian Association of Journalists Award in 2017. The pipeline was subsequently terminated. He has recently exposed how federal, how federal officials in their review of the Kinder Morgan Trans Mountain Pipeline expansion were already planning on approval even as they were saying that they hadn't yet made a decision and claiming to be negotiating in good faith in consultations with First Nations. Thank you, Mike D'Souza, for joining us. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, so here's the, the concept of the show. Basically, if you were a person who's following the media uh, so far on the Kinder Morgan, you could be you could be completely you could you could actually be trying to follow the news, and you'd still end up with a pretty, pretty, a pretty high level understanding that it's mostly just between BC and the NDP and the federal government, sort of infighting within within politics. And yet, there's sort of an entire other there, there are multiple other wings that this sort of ignores and so the idea of the show is to sort of ignore the whole who this looks good for and who looks bad for and actually to sort of focus on pipelines in canada and the processes they have to go through and, and where we stand with kinder morgan today uh and to open i want to sort of start with the most i want to sort of start with a framing as to why kinder morgan matters really uh which is in part due to a combination of other different things starting originally actually with uh, with with Energy East, uh, and even before that, KXL being delayed for as long as it was. Uh, but just to start, uh, Mike, can you give us an example, or, or uh, very generally, what's the process for a pipeline getting approved in Canada? Different processes depending on if it's interprovincial, international, or within within a province. Okay. So you know, in the case of Kinder Morgan, we're talking about an interprovincial pipeline, so that automatically triggers a federal review under the National Energy Board uh, previously uh, since since 2012 under under uh, changes to environmental laws that were adopted by the then uh, Harper government. 
the NEB would have been tasked to to lead uh, lead an independent review, um, looking at all the technical aspects. Um, it, it operates like a court. Uh, it is a, the equivalent of a federal court. So it reviews, it hears from all sides, and then it makes a, a decision on the end whether to approve and what conditions, if it approves, would be attached to it. So that's in a nutshell what happens. Cool. Uh, and, and who's on the National Age Board? Like, who are the people who sort of make it up? How do they sort of get appointed and how that does work? Uh, they're appointed by by the government uh, of, of the day. So members of the NEB are appointed normally to seven-year terms. Uh, you could have uh, – I forget. I think it's nine permanent members and you could have an unlimited number of temporary members. So the government at any point can appoint – You know, they could, they could appoint like 20 temporary members if they wanted. And uh, you know, the, the NEB then could decide to allow temporary members to oversee – panels um, reviewing projects. So you know in the case of uh, in the case of the the, the recent energy East, um, the Harper government had initially appointed NEB members and then the NEB selected a panel to review energy East and then things fell apart. Uh, the there was a situation where essentially everyone on the board who had been appointed by Harper was tainted in some way or in an appearance of a conflict of interest. So it did require new members to be appointed who would lead or then uh, resume that review. So the liberals appointed – I think they've they've appointed like seven temporary members uh, to the NEB, and three of those had been assigned then to take over the review of Energy East. They set new conditions, and then the the project fell apart, or Trans Canada decided to pull out for a number of different reasons, which I don't know if you want me to get into. Um, but uh, yeah, Trans Canada ultimately decided to pull out. Um, there are some vacancies on the board right now. The government hasn't replaced them because, of course, they've introduced legislation to completely change all environmental laws to replace the NEB with a new body and there would be new members uh, appointed to that board. And all the current members probably will be out of work soon. Right. Uh, and so so actually I do want to get into it briefly just because I, I think it's important to sort of understand the background of the sort of history of pipelines in the last couple of years. Uh, and so, so – Energy East, just very quickly for our listeners who may have, have, have no idea what Energy East because we sort of stopped talking about it two years ago, um, uh, was a pipeline that was coming east uh, all the way to the Atlantic Ocean, I believe. Uh, and, and it was coming through Quebec and it had a whole bunch of different, had a whole bunch of different sort of opponents uh, along the way. Uh, but the bigger problem actually had to do with uh, Jean Charest and, and a larger thing that you sort of uncovered with, with that in the NEB. Can you get into the Charest affair, quote unquote? Mm-hmm. So after he left politics, uh, the former premier of Quebec, uh, Jean Charest, he went to work for uh, McCarthy Tetro, a law firm. Uh, and this law firm has uh, – among its clients has TransCanada uh, as, as a client. So he was doing some work, some consulting work for them uh, I guess in I think it was 2014 or 2015, uh, probably late 2014, he had started to do consulting work for them after he left politics, uh, and you know he he essentially became a spokesman or, or or almost a salesman for the project. And at one point, uh, a member of the board invited him to to meet with 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 him, uh, Jacques Gauthier, a board a board member, or at the time. 
time. Uh, he still is a board member. And so he invited Charest to participate in a meeting to discuss Energy East. So they went into this meeting. There were two people, including Gauthier and um, Lynn Mercier, if I'm not mistaken, who were actually on the panel reviewing Energy East. And they discussed it. They talked about it, not only with him, but with other stakeholders as well, with the mayor of Montreal, um, for example. So they heard all this kind of information about what to do with the project when these people are the equivalent of judges. And a review is supposed to be impartial. A hearing is supposed to be like a trial or a court case. And so if a judge is like, let's say, Stefan, you're accused of a crime and the prosecutor uh, meets privately with the judge to talk about what Stefan did last week. Um, that would not be fair right. to you. Right. And, yes. and and so that that would, you know, throw throw that trial. I mean, the whole the whole trial into question. Right. Yeah. So this is what happened with Energy East. Um the panel members decided to meet privately with Mr. Charret, a lawyer who was working for TransCanada. He I, and it's not clear. He says, I mean, he didn't tell them in advance. Um, they say they didn't know, and so regardless whether they knew or not, the the existence of that meeting was extremely problematic, and that is what threw the whole process into chaos. When a number of uh, a number of interveners. Uh, Asked the board to to review that and 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 ask these members to recuse themselves. And once they recused themselves, there were these delays because then they had to find new members. Right. And and then yeah. Sorry, can I? I just want to jump in. I just want to ask you to split that hair slightly further for me. So when we're talking about the the appearance of corruption here, are we talking about uh, it? conflict of interest? Sorry, uh, yeah. sorry. Uh, conflict, of conflict of interest. Of so interest. are we talking about something? The reason I was going for uh, that I used the other language was uh, is it was was that act? So say the, uh, say they found out just hypothetically they had evidence that th- that was a lie and both sides did know in advance. Would that have actually would that have been just politically damaging or would that have actually been a crime? Um, like, sir, was it was he removed? Yeah, I, I don't know. I'm not. I'm not a lawyer. Um, I, I I know that there were complaints filed to the lobbying commissioner, um, and I don't know what happened with those complaints. We haven't heard if if the lobbying commissioner actually investigated or not. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, certainly there there are political problems. You know, Mr. Charest went into that meeting and gave them political advice about how to get a pipeline approved mm-hmm. in, in 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 Canada. Um, Denis Coderre, actually, on the other side, he was giving them advice about, um, you know, what he didn't want to see or what his concerns were. Mm-hmm. And and so that was also on the other side the, that was problematic for them to be hearing those those kind of comments from him. From him. And it's not – I mean it's, it's – it's, um, I mean in that case, I don't know if it was, you know, the mayor of Montreal at the time's fault. But I mean he was invited to the meeting and so of course he's going to speak about what, you know, his views are and, and he'll raise his points. But, you know – you know those panel members. I mean, I don't know what they were doing in that meeting. It's mm. it's 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 a, it's a problem in it's an error in judgment, mm. um, perhaps in experience. Um, the fact that the the chief executive, the chairman of the board, was there. I mean, it's it, it all speaks to a culture where um, I would say you know throughout my career I have seen that. Um, Executives, particularly from the oil patch, they're they're used to a certain type of behavior where they have this access. They can go into the back rooms and speak to senior government officials and 
state their views and they have they have a bit of a privileged access. Some of it might be valid that you know it's important for governments to speak to uh, to to people in industry who can create jobs who have you know important impacts on on public policy and 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 uh, our way of life. But it is problematic. But to your question on whether it's it's um, uh, whether other sanctions could be applied, I, I can't answer that. And so you, you might want to get some some legal experts <laughs> sure. to talk to that. Yeah. So, so, to, so to sort of, it sounds almost as if theoretically, had this conversation happened during an NEB uh, session, there would be no real issue. The issue was sort of that that the both sides were sort of having a sort of backroom discussion for for almost seemingly no real understanding. Um, but so that occurs, and then the fallout is is really this this large delay, uh, which then which then leads you say a number of factors. What can you speak on some of the other factors that sort of led to Trans Canada eventually sort of being like, okay, this seems like it's a little too much. Uh, we're out. Well, the economics of the project was you know was always you know a certain issue there. Um, after. Particularly after the uh, the U.S. election mm -hmm. in in 2016, you know, in 2017, Trump approved Keystone XL. Yeah, Energy East was only created as as an alternative to Keystone XL when they when when the company and the and the oil companies that wanted to ship on that pipeline when they when they realized that there were problems and that they might not get Keystone XL approved, they created this other project as an alternative to bypass or get around Obama mm -hmm. at the time. So at the point where Keystone XL is approved, then suddenly. You know, you have the shippers committed to that. There weren't necessarily enough shippers committed to Energy East. Even after Keystone XL was approved, you know, there's questions about whether there were enough shippers. Mm -hmm. The Alberta government had to backstop Keystone. They had to give a guarantee and buy space. So, you know, there's 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 some subsidies, yeah. government subsidies that are that are helping Keystone XL go ahead and, and even at that. The company hasn't actually confirmed yet that it's going ahead, and there are still some legal issues it has to get around in in Nebraska and 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 throughout the U.S. if it wants to proceed. Yeah, yeah, and that's that, that's where I was headed was the the fact that even after KXL gets approved, you're still it's still facing resistance. It still hasn't been approved, and this almost this interesting is that. Trump's existence and his sort of his sort of flippantness with NATO and other agreements has sort of made the the Alberta uh, in, in, in Canadian oil industry kind of concerned generally about this idea, which has sort of has then flipped to the has flipped and sort of led uh, more pressure to, to get Kinder Morgan passed uh, because they sort of see that as the true op opportunity for their oil sales. You know, and, and that you say sort of that that even that KXL doesn't have. This well, I think I think the. Uh, I think the oil and the oil shippers. I think they're happy that that Keystone XL has been approved. Oh, oh for sure. Yeah. And and you know the ones that that want to ship that have commitments and that are ready to ship oil to the Gulf Coast of uh, of, of Texas or, or the Gulf of Mexico, uh, they're happy um, and they want to see that project proceed. There's also Enbridge's Line Nine replacement that'll yes. expand some capacity uh, to to the U.S. Midwest, um, and that's you know that's an important project for them, but that, that also gives that capacity. There's three projects on the table right now that could dramatically expand uh, the shipping the shipping access for 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 oil sands producers. One is KXL, one is the Enbridge Line Three, and the other is Trans Mountain. Now the numbers. This is a mathematics game. They're they're 
there conceivably could be enough capacity with one of those pipelines to meet all the existing project, uh, production projections mm. for the next five, ten years. Oh, if we go to 2030, technically we only need two. I mean, that is if, if we're just looking at the pure mathematics about how much capacity is needed. And also presuming that, ca- that, the, tar- that the oil sands continue to expand. Well, there's certain pr- production projections that are confirmed right. that would be, you know, that 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 production is going to occur. Um, it is. It would be kind of difficult for some of that production that has been approved to stop. I mean, it depends on the project, but some of it is going to go ahead. I think, um, and some of it might end up being shipped by rail. Some of it might end up being shipped on roads by trucks. Uh, some of it, you know, I, I mean, I I don't know if there's any options to expand refining capacities capacity in Canada, but maybe that could be an option as well. Um, but if all three are approved, like when I did the math, it would add up to an 86% increase in production of of the oil, of uh, Western Canada's oil production. So if all three go ahead, they will, they will be able to expand production by 86% between now and 2030. Wow. Uh, and of course, that has a, a whole host of, of, of climate implications and other things. Uh, but as we said, we're, we're carrying on with just the pipeline pieces of this. Uh, so all of this basically leads us to, uh, to sort of the, the decision on the, on, the, on, the, on, the, on the Canadian government to on what pipelines to go forward and not, right? Uh, and, and so they, they, they kill Northern Gateway uh, or, or they just deny Northern Gateway access, and then they, but they accept Line 3 and, and Kinder Morgan. Uh, line three has, has 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 managed to sort of skirt almost all news. Uh, I'm not sure if I'm not sure if you've sort of heard it, uh, heard too much of it. But it, 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 given the given the mammoth amount of news that Ken Morgan has managed to make, line three sort of seems to be uh, this sort of hidden little thing. You're going to get a little sense of what what's going on there. Well, there's there's been some news uh, developments on on line three in the past week, as mm-hmm. as you might have seen in, right. in Minnesota, and and that's where there is. Uh, I, I would say the strongest opposition to the project mm-hmm. is in Minnesota. Uh, so you know there there was a there was a ruling uh, there about the route that mm-hmm. could expand, make it more difficult for Enbridge to proceed. It'll increase the costs um, because they're being asked to go around. Um, you know certain certain areas that uh, where 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 the state has decided that the water um, is is at risk. Um, the route change also you know there's there's issues with indigenous communities as well that are opposed to to the project going through their their territory. So you know it's facing the same sort of uh, issues that that KXL or, or Trans Mountain are facing. Um, you know, in essence, though, this is a replacement project. It's 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 replacing a very old and and rusty um, pipeline that has had some safety issues and and leaks. Um, that pipeline does need to be replaced in in the replacement project that Enbridge has proposed. It is it is. Expanding the capacity, you know, replacing mm-hmm. an old uh, pipeline with a larger, newer, and presumably safer pipeline. So, you know, having a replacement is probably a good idea. Um, the expansion is is another issue, right. and and the work that is required, of course, there's there's always going to be risks. Oh, excellent. Okay, so we've now set up, uh, we spent the first 20 minutes setting up Kinder Morgan, and now we're going to go to a music break uh, so we can take a second. Let to yourself get ready. digest. Let yourself digest. Yeah. Because uh, when we return, we're turning just right into Kinder Morgan. Uh, and so, can we, what's, our, what's our music for the day? 
All right, we're back. You're listening to The Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM. Also could be listening. I got so excited at the beginning, I forgot to mention. You could also be listening on one of our wonderful and very appreciated community radio partners across the country in the United States. Or you could be listening to our podcast, which can be found at greenmajority.ca. Uh, if you miss anything from the show, you can go uh, listen to the rest of it there. Or look at the links, which today will the entire post will basically just be a sea of Mike D'Souza links. Uh, so if you've, uh, if you've never read any of his reporting... Today might be the day because the most ever concentration of Mike D'Souza articles outside of the National Observer itself will be on today's show post. Uh, with that, uh, Stefan, you've been running today's interview. Yep. I pass it back to you. We're now moving on to Kinder Morgan. Yes, exactly. So so Kinder Morgan uh, is approved. Uh, can you just sort of get us uh, – and I feel like this is something that has been somewhat ignored uh, by the larger larger, the larger mainstream media, which is just the, the amount of which people who are sort of following this knew how much of a fight it was going to be. Can you give us a sense of sort of the, the, the reaction from indigenous activists, environmental activists, and sort of BC in general at the time of this approval? Like, how did they, so how did they, how did they feel? Like, like the, I, I feel like I, I almost remember that when it, when it came out, the first thing I saw, at least in, in my Twitter feed from one of the environmental activists was, was that this will not get built was sort of their, was their mantra. Uh, and, and so you sort of knew they were in for a, for a, for a bit of a, bit of a fight. And then, and then of course the, the, oh, I'm jumping ahead a little bit, but the, but the, uh, the, the, the NDP getting government really sort of put a secondary piece to this, but just a sense of like, how are, how are people feeling in, in BC yeah. about the project? Well, well, certainly, you know, there was a history of of uh, uh, angry opposition to this project from 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 the moment it was maybe not from the moment, but soon after it was approved. Um, you know, you go back to the uh, there's that expression, the bat the Battle of Burnaby Mountain, I think it's called. Mm-hmm. Um, well before the project was approved, during the time when 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 Stephen Harper was prime minister. Um, you know there 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 was a significant protest and a clash with with police there just for some preliminary work being done uh there by 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 Trans Mountain or by Kinder Morgan um the day it was approved you know if you go back to that time in 2016 the government under under the rules uh set up um and under the timeline they had set out they had until if i remember correctly i think it was december 14th to make their decision known i i was you know i was in the room the day that that the prime minister and, and members of his of his cabinet walked in at the National Press Theater in Ottawa, walked in, and I was expecting, okay, they're going to say no to Northern Gateway and yes to Line 3, and I expected – I wasn't entirely sure that they would be making a decision that day on, on, on Trans Mountain. So, you know, I was somewhat surprised to see that, you know, and that was, of course, the headline, and – you know, we we posted our story rapidly online. We could see this surge of traffic uh, coming onto our site, and you know, within hours, there were people out on the streets of Vancouver who were not pleased. There were people out on the streets in Victoria who were not pleased. Um, so there was a strong reaction. You know, people weren't necessarily expecting the decision that day but as soon as it came out um there 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 was certainly this is this is the reaction that people had there um whether you know i'm sure that there is a lot there is a large number of people along the pipeline route uh in vancouver perhaps on vancouver island who might be indifferent about this or might 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 support it um but 
they haven't really their support for this pro project hasn't really driven them to go out onto the streets and in the case of opposition people are passionate about it uh, quick uh, follow-up on that uh, you know sitting here in toronto we we and uh, reporting on this is sort of all the different pipelines feel the same in the sense that you know we're reporting on climate battles and, and that mm -hmm. sort of thing but I, I i'm aware of the fact that in uh we've spoken to uh, and i've met a couple times ben west who used to be with forest ethics and i forget what he's doing now he's, but he's, he's with the slave tooth nation he, yeah, yeah, he yeah, is okay that's why that's why his name popped into my head working for this uh, so he's yeah. he's been he's been sunk into these issues for minimum a decade and and he, he used to uh when we interviewed him about five years ago essentially his job uh with where he was i don't think it was forest ethics at the time doesn't matter uh but he was not yet working with uh, slay watsuth first nation uh was that he was essentially the kinder morgan guy and he would do that and so part of the understanding that we got from him and i've and i've learned from other sources is that like people in bc know kinder morgan and it's not a matter of just like oh it's a pipeline company like oh it's kinder morgan like they're like they know about it they know people in bc tend to who are awake woke on these issues like they know about this company and this company is particularly you know above above average bad track record do you think that is relevant i won't ask you to comment on on my opinion pieces there but do you do you think that was relevant in that outrage do you think that people are particularly activated the people in bc specifically i'm talking about and and the opposition particularly ap uh, activated by the fact that it's kinder morgan or is this just anti-pipeline? I don't know if that's a general sentiment. I, 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 I mean, I don't know that that Kinder Morgan has a bad track record compared to compared to other companies. Um, you know, in general, a lot of a lot of energy companies, pipeline companies, they have good track records. There's, you know, the, the spills and the accidents are few and far between. But but there, you know, there's certainly a risk there. Uh, the people who are opposed to this project are passionate and they are loud, and you know, they're they're making their voices heard, and that's clear. Whether that extends into the entire population of BC, I don't know. And and you know, it, it, it it's. If if they did, I mean, you know, maybe maybe there would be different coverage in in all of the BC media on this issue, and there's not, you know, there's there's there isn't right now. Um, the the coverage that I see doesn't necessarily reflect that everyone in in British Columbia knows who Kinder Morgan is. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I, and I think that's I think that, that that sort of segues into an important piece of this, which is so. We're sort of now we're, we're almost catching up to real time. We're almost we're almost back to where we're at now. Uh, and and what's interesting about this was that this all sort of sort of really hit the national news. I think right when Kinder Morgan pulls out and Kinder, and what's interesting about that is that Kinder Morgan had uh, sort of as in early April, I believe, uh, comes out and basically says without any basically we're not going to invest any new money in this. Uh, because 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 the government of BC is not helping us. They said they were going to stop non-essential spending, okay. and we don't know what that means. What that means? Though. Okay, okay. So, okay. <laughs> so, so they they sort of make a statement that says we're not happy, and this might not go through, but we're just going to stay here. And they give a deadline, I think, of May thirty first for something else to change. Basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was what I found interesting about that was they made the decision on the heels of what had been about two weeks of unbelievable pressure from activists and indigenous groups, uh, really, really sort of trying to force them. Uh, and really causing them, I'm sure, a whole mountain of trouble. Uh, you know, they were they were they were blocking gates. They were locking such things. They were they were, they were putting the, the tiny houses that that, that are that are being built in the line of the pipeline. There was this whole thing, and then they, then they come out with this, but they focus entirely on the BC government. 
Uh, so can you talk about what the BC government is doing specifically, the NDP BC government specifically do is, oh, how are they opposing the pipeline? What, what, what are the, what's their option? How are they even, how are they even like, what, how could they fight this and how are they? The BC government, um, is, is looking at regulations to restrict the transportation of bitumen, particularly on, on their coast. Um, as far as I know, uh, they have a case there. Mm. Um, the federal government has approved a pipeline. Um, that approval doesn't necessarily give the federal government the full and complete jurisdiction over what happens to the bitumen, the diluted bitumen or, or whatever other petroleum products are once they get to that terminal in Burnaby. So – you know the way our our constitution was was drafted. Um, you know the environment; it never was clear. Um, it, it was always a shared jurisdiction, and so this does this does create an issue. I think that um, I'm not sure what the courts will decide, and you know I'll, I'll be very interested to see if this goes to the Supreme Court how how it's settled. Cool. It was, I find that interesting because sort of the rest of the reporting in some way almost sort of ends up discussing almost a different court case, which we're going to get to in half a second. Um, because shortly after this sort of main this main sort of uh, tension between now there's the federal and NDP government, federal and uh, Alberta NDP governments sort of pressuring uh, pressuring BC to do stuff, and yet. I was, so then this is the whole conversation. And then suddenly this sort of entirely new sort of thing comes in uh, with your reporting around so the drips around the concerns that Trudeau government was moving too fast on the pipeline. Uh, what was sort of the first indication that that was that there was a problem here with sort of that part of the approval? That it was moving too fast. Um, I think from the moment in, in, in November 2016 in, in particular, um, I mean, I, I was. I mean, there were there were signals throughout that year. There there was a story I think in the spring, in in the National Post, uh, by John Iveson, uh, a column where he had he had quoted unnamed government officials, political officials, uh, in the Trudeau government, saying that Trudeau had already decided he's going to say no to Energy East and he's going to say yes to Trans Mountain expansion. Uh, so. You know, that was maybe one of the first indications. I mean, when he was in opposition, Trudeau had al had also uh, given s certain signals indicating that he was, um, you know, he, he was inclined to favor the Trans Mountain project as as a twinning of an existing line. It is it is a twinning for seventy percent of the route. About thirty percent of it is a new line, um, but particularly in in. Yeah, I mean, I you know my own conversations with people in government uh, going into the summer. You know, I also you know heard indications this is uh, this is important to get a pipeline approved, uh, particularly in order to to prop up or support the work that Rachel Notley, the Premier of Alberta, is doing. The first. Uh, the NDP premier, the first one to actually produce a real climate change plan in in, in Alberta's history, I, mm -hmm. I, I think. Um, the first NDP, um, the first sorry government in Alberta to to put a to put you know a large price on carbon across many many parts of the economy. The first 
government in, in, in Alberta's history to actually say there's a limit to how much the oil sands can pollute. Um, you know, no government has done that before. So with all these things, um, you know, the federal government was was taking a position that uh, we want to find some way, you know, we've taken some steps forward with Alberta, and we want this to continue. So we need to provide we, we need to balance um, what kind of policies will help ensure that this government, progressive government in Alberta can get reelected mm. and not be replaced by a government or a party that tears up any concern or any policy that actually could do something or some positive step mm-hmm. for, for, for the environment. Yeah. Uh, and, and of course, Jason Kenney uh, is, is certainly hinting that he would, he would move in a, a much more obviously more conservative agenda given his given his, his new leadership position yeah. as opposition and if if i may sorry yeah. uh, continue just uh, also to say that in you know particularly in november though you know i was also getting signals from you know there were there were a group of scientists uh, independent scientists that had put together this paper looking at the um, the impacts of bitumen on the oceans and they had made a point of wanting to get this scientific paper peer-reviewed, a peer-reviewed assessment of the impacts looking at, I think it was 900 different scientific peer-reviewed studies and, and bringing it together. Uh, they sent that directly to the prime minister's office and very quickly it was it was just batted aside without without actually a thorough analysis by the government mm. so again that was one of the signs in november that you know we were aware of that indicated uh, the government had made up his mind and was going to approve it and ask questions later right. or or solve or address the gaps mm. and and try to fix it later but just get it approved now right uh, and then, and then, and then it comes out uh, that that the Kinder Morgan's uh, Ian Anderson has has called uh, sort of uh, actually basically reached out to the senior di- di- uh, bureaucrats, sorry, uh, and that uh, and that 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 sort of it basically encouraged them to speed it up, and then it may have actually sped up for, at, from that point. Uh, can you sort of elaborate on on sort of what the what the specifics were of that call, or you know generally the call, and sort of mm-hmm. what happened, what what that means by speeding up, basically? Yeah, I think there's there's a number of uh, public servants I've spoken to who were working on this file uh, who, you know, felt that the government had taken a very cynical approach to how it was reviewing this project and, and that there was an opportunity to get this project approved and do it in the right way. But the government had decided to go in a direction that um, – you know, was not allowing a thorough review and, and fixing the problem. So one of them had had uh, in a conversation with me had said, uh, "Well, I guess I guess it means uh, all of Ian Anderson's trips to Ottawa really paid off." <laughs> um, so you know, they they had this impression that he had this direct line uh, to the government and was was well, which he probably did, right. <laughs> um, and. Uh, so did others, though. You know, envir- environmental groups had a direct line to the government. The government did meet with everyone, was was listening to everyone. But in terms of the advice they took, right. um, it, it seems that a lot of the stuff that, that Ian Anderson wanted, Ian Anderson got. Um, you know, in, in a sense, the government did extend the process. They did 
a slightly longer process than what it would have been under the Harper government. There were some issues that they considered. They went through certain protocols to consult and, and attempt to accommodate First Nations. The problem that seems in my observations based on the evidence I saw is that of all the thousands of comments, the hours, the hundreds of pages or thousands of pages of documents that they exchanged with First Nations, with stakeholders, with cities, with everyone who was directly affected by this project, it's clear to me the government received this information. It's not clear to me what they did with it and whether they actually attempted to address legitimate concerns that were being raised. And, 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 that's, and I think that, that question of legitimate concern is going to be quite important, uh, as, especially as we move forward. Uh, did you have a quick question? No, I just wanted to insert that this part of the story really reminds me of that saying that uh, if you feel like you get to a meeting and their decision's already been made, it's because you weren't actually in the meeting. Oh, yeah. That's, I just want <laughs> yeah, – it's a joke, but right. I just wanted to well, – that's that's the, that's, that, that actually really matters in this case, of <laughs> course, because of the duty to consult, which we'll get to in half a second. But the, the last thing I want to do before the break is, is on, the, on, on the question of – there's an article that on April 24th. Uh, that came out uh, that you wrote saying that government insiders had sort of uh, agree with opponents' suspicions, basically that the approval process was "quote unquote" rigged, um, and and that sort of that in the sort of you're hinting at that. But was there any, what led, what led them to that sort of opinion? That you know, again, was it just those documents that you sort of felt like they were receiving documents, but they were just never really reviewing them? Uh, was there anything specific that they sort of saw, or was it this more general feeling because of all the things that were coming in and how they were still moving on? Did it sort mm -hmm. of feel like they were just ignoring the conversation? Yeah. So there's, uh, Seven, there's documents on the record that we've put out uh, mm -hmm. on Monday this week. Yeah. We put out um, uh, we put out an article that, you know, releases all our, our documents. I had actually started posting them last week. Uh, I started putting them online on my script page and yeah I mean I think by now uh, I was looking at the numbers yesterday more than a hundred thousand people have actually viewed some of those documents collectively so within those documents it's pretty clear that public servants were, were sending warnings that this was going fast that there were concerns they had it was going fast that there were concerns related to at the time a federal court of appeal decision in which a pipeline approval for Enbridge Northern Gateway was overturned because of a lack of adequate consultations with First Nations which is if you know some people, some politicians are talking about the rule of law. If we follow the rule of law in Canada, Canada's constitution requires the federal government to consult with First Nations, and so there were concerns raised here that that they were not. Um, quite frankly, though, going beyond all those documents, I, I mean, I think it is clear from those documents that those concerns were being raised that uh, there wasn't enough time to address all the concerns, that a little more time might have been helpful, even if it was two or three, four months. Uh, that might have been something that could have made a huge difference in terms of allowing you know some of these gaps to be addressed and finding an adequate plan to move forward. But you know what was explicitly clear to these public servants, they were told – they say they were told point blank in a meeting, find us a way to give cabinet a legally sound way to a yes. <laughs> so when you're given those instructions privately, while the government is saying publicly we're still consulting, we haven't made a decision, there's, there's a bit of a problem that, that troubled a lot of the public servants, I think, who were working on this file. And I reached out to a lot of them. I reached, you know, there were um, a number of departments involved. Um, 
Natural Resources Canada was the lead, Environment and Climate Change Canada, Department of Fisheries and Oceans, uh, Indigenous and Northern Affairs, Transport Canada, Health Canada, uh, and and the, the Port of Metro Vancouver. I reached out to each one of these organizations. I spoke to people um, at, 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 you know, every, in all of the people who were at, at the meeting, I've reached out to representatives from each of these organizations and, you know, uh, some of them have confirmed explicitly this was said. Some of them have decided not to comment. Some of them have decided not to comment. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't really comment. You should talk to media relations on this. <laughs> but, you know, um, uh, it, it is clear that explicit instructions were given and that people were troubled by these instructions. All right. So we, as we hit our second music break, uh, Kinder Morgan now exists as an improved pipeline, but is hitting some trouble. Uh, when we, when it, our, our final uh, culmination will be sort of the, the the fallout of this of this reporting uh, and where we stand today. Uh, and so, throwing over to to Megan on our music break. What's uh, what's next? So, okay. We're live on the air. We're back here after the break uh, uh, on the Green Majority here at CIUT. A uh, lot of discussion in the booth today. Yeah. It's because we have so much content. Drowning <laughs> in content. I've had like one sarcastic comment in the last 40 <laughs> minutes. Uh, uh, it's only because we love Mike that I'm restraining myself. Uh, thank you again for all your hard work, Mike. Honestly, I, I'm sure you don't listen to the show ever, or if you do, it's rare. Um, but if you did, you would realize we I, actually talk about you fairly regularly. I, I, work, I did so. listen last week, and I heard this line about about the possibility of myself ending up in jail in a few years. <laughs> I hope that doesn't happen. But we, yes. uh, d- to, be, to be clear, I wasn't advocating <laughs> I was just saying that you would either end up with a medal or be in jail. And if I'm not mistaken, you've been, uh, you've been given an award. So there you go. An honorable mention, apparently. Yeah. Yes. The, uh, but, but okay. So, so here we are. Uh, we've got, um, we, we now are at a scenario where we're only a couple we, we're only a week or two away from being at the present day at this point um, and and Trudeau and the, and the federal government is now getting under fire from uh, from the House of Commons uh, from opposition leader Jagmeet Singh uh, from from a whole variety of places to, to just sort of explain what was going on uh, what was his defense Trudeau's defense yeah, yeah. Um, The government, I think him, him, the prime minister and, and, and the minister of uh, natural resources and, and even the environment minister who in, in, in quite a, quite a striking, uh, striking display of, 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 of or bold boldness, um, you know, she put out a video in the, in the past week, uh, explaining why, why the trans mountain project is, is important, um, <laughs> So they they have all said that they you know they did their homework that they did consultations they list the numbers of the number of people they met with or heard from the number of submissions um, the the you know the the documentation so they've they've said that they they tried and I think it's sort of a legal argument that they're making that they tried to check off all the boxes that's the mm-hmm. expression that you know some of the first nations the the Tsleil-Waututh in particular felt that the government was just checking off a box to do what it was the minimum legal requirements of 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 consultation and accommodation so their defense is that they did that consultation uh, by the book they held the meetings they were required to, ha- to 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 hold they heard the concerns of first nations and then they just decided to say no. Um, you know, they, you know, some of some of the First Nations involved did not want to give consent. Some of them did. Some some First Nations signed on and said they wanted 
the project, um, and 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 others did not. And the government said that they chose to listen to the First Nations that want to support right. the project. Yeah. Sorry, th- I, this is an important detail that I haven't talked about on the show because I've yet to find anywhere who can sort this out. Uh, hoping that you can sort this out for me right now. We keep hearing, uh, you know, social media uh, from activists will say, you know, 133 chiefs have signed. So we hear a lot from the the, the quote unquote activists or the quote unquote resistance um, that you know basically all of First Nation groups are opposed to the pipelines. And then we'll see tweets from politicians saying, uh, or some where they don't seem too common, but some people saying on the other side, well, you're ignoring the look. We have 13 chiefs who say yes yep. and then someone also say well that number's a lie I've never seen them can you okay. sort that out yeah I can tell you what the number so the 133 that you're you're probably referring to a story we did earlier this week that refers to chiefs in Ontario mm-hmm. who have joined this treaty alliance uh, they call it they call it in their words treaty alliance against against the tar sands mm-hmm. so this is an alliance of first nations Leaders across the com- uh, country who are who are opposed to not opposed to the industry. They don't want to shut it down, but they just don't want it to expand beyond its current levels. Mm-hmm. And that's an important argument that I think a lot of people, including environmentalists, I I don't know many people who have said. I mean, maybe maybe you guys have, but I I, I haven't heard anyone say let's shut it down overnight. Yeah. Um, I've heard people say let's let's start a transition, and the first step is stop expansion. If you went so, back to the first two years of the radio show, maybe, but since then, <laughs> <laughs> no. And 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 it's a serious. I mean, there there are you know tens of thousands of people who are employed, and 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 there is a need for a transition to you know as 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 we move to a low carbon economy that. As, as scientists and, 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 and industry and government say we're moving to a low-carbon economy, we have to do it in a smart way, I think. Um, I stated my opinion for a rare, <laughs> rare uh, occasion. So the numbers um, the numbers that I have seen, government the government identified 114, specifically with Trans Mountain, they identified 114 indigenous groups that they said were directly affected mm-hmm. by the project. Um, the documents I've seen, some of them that that were released, uh, that we released uh, last week, uh, show that um, at the time of approval, there was more than half of them that that told the government, "We need more time for consultations." Uh, right now, I think the number is forty-three groups have signed agreements saying they support the project. So it would be. About two thirds of those directly affected, and 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 there are some numbers that suggest there's more directly affected. But let's go with the government's number: 114. You have 43 that have signed agreements, so officially support or endorse in some ways. You know, there have been stories of some First Nations that have that have endorsed it, but said that they were kind of forced that they had no choice, or at least one, there's at least one example of that, an APTN story that that ran in the past week uh, to, to that effect. But so let's say there's 43. One thing that's kind of interesting about this is that in December 2016, Trans Mountain said that there were 51 that <laughs> supported it. So mm-hmm. Trans Mountain has changed its own number from 51 to 43. 
Trans Mountain also um, at one point had said that one First Nation in particular had endorsed the project and then it was forced to apologize and say that they hadn't and that it had misstated in a regulatory document, in a document that was submitted to the BC's regulatory process, um, the company had claimed uh, – and by the way, when I say Trans Mountain Kinder Morgan, I mean they're interchangeable because mm-hmm. of – you know there's a bunch of subsidiaries involved, but um, – yeah, so the company Trans Mountain was actually forced to apologize for saying, in one instance, for saying that a First Nation that supported the project had not. And, you know, I've asked them questions about how did we go from 51 to 43? Like, did, did eight change their minds or had you overstated? I haven't gotten a response or explanation. So it's not yet. my fault that I've been confused <laughs> about this. It has genuinely been hard to follow. <laughs> it's been confusing. Yeah, there's there's a lot of numbers out there, but you know, safe to say that there are dozens of First Nations that uh, are First Nations groups representatives that are in favor of this project. Thirty three of those forty three are in BC, ten in Alberta, and certainly safe to say that some First Nations, dozens of First Nations, are against. Yeah, and it, yeah, that, that adds a, adds an element to this. So we, we're down to eight minutes left, and I feel like there's there's sort of three questions that I sort of want to uh, that we I want to touch on before before we leave. So I'm going to throw them all at you, and then you can sort of uh, hand. Uh, hey, that's my trick. I know. I'm sorry. Well, one of them is You're your question. My best move. Well, one of them is going to be your question. If, so. if I were a politician, I would only answer the last question you asked. So. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, we'll have to decide which one. You can decide which one you like the best, and just go with it. Because the first one is really just where we stand now. Uh, the second one is, as I teased at the beginning, I'm, I'm very interested in sort of the reaction that you've received uh, from this reporting. Uh, and then the third was sort of, uh, was, was, was you had Yeah, wh- about, wh- why do you think it's resonating? Do you agree that it's resonating more than most environment stories and why? Yeah, so I sort of feel like all three are somewhat connected. Uh, <laughs> but if you if you want to start with uh, just where we're at now and then transition into sort of uh, why, yeah, is it, why is it resonating slash uh, what's the reaction that you feel free or just, just you know, say words for seven minutes okay. is all totally fine. <laughs> I, I'm going to take the last question first. All right. <laughs> um, but I, I won't answer it. Um, <laughs> why is it resonating or is it resonating more? I, I don't know. Mm. Um, I mean, I've, you know, uh, maybe I can get into that when I talk about reaction. There's mm. certainly a reaction to the story, but there's a reaction to lots of, lots of articles that right. we do. Um, where are we right now? So, you have you have a bunch of different um, negotiations going on, financial negotiations between the government of Canada, the Alberta government, and Kinder Morgan representatives. So they are trying to find some kind of a deal uh, to help convince Kinder Morgan to stay on board. Um, this could mean that the federal government or the Alberta government invests in the project. So puts public money into this pipeline. Um, I don't think it'll be a straight out subsidy, um, but it'll it'll be subsidizing the company in some way, perhaps through an investment where the government sees that there is a possibility to get a return right. on the investment if the project ends up being profitable. Hmm. Uh, the other aspect of where we're at right now, um, you have the BC uh, challenge uh, or reference case where, where they're attempting to get the courts to uh, agree that they, with their position, that they have jurisdiction to regulate um, and protect their coasts um, and to protect their water um, in terms of the, the transportation of bitumen through 
their uh, their province, and you have this federal court of appeal case in which a number of the First Nations uh, who believe that they weren't adequately consulted, as is required by law and by the Constitution, this case is, is going forward. So we reported um, on, on, Wednesday, uh, on Thursday, we reported about a motion that was filed on Wednesday uh, asking the court to compel the federal government to release uh, to release unredacted copies of some of the some of the documents that that we uh, that we obtained at National Observer. I, I I feel compelled also to correct something. There, I, I did catch a mistake. It's an important one in <laughs> yeah. in the motion filed by by the lawyers for the Salewatooth. They had they have presented an argument saying that National Observer provided them with 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 documents that that they ended up uh, tabling in the court. That isn't true. Mm. Um, we we posted the, the the documents publicly and and, and they and, and, and they. Them. They access them. So they, you know, we provided them to everyone in the general public. Um, so this case, you know, they've asked the court to compel the release of evidence. They've, they've asked the court to compel also additional notes from anyone who was at that meeting. And um, the government right now, I believe, has 10 days to respond to that motion. And then there would be an additional four days for for response. And then the court would deliberate on evidence. This is an exceptional, unusual circumstance because the hearings actually wrapped up all the evidence and, you know, the trial is supposed to be o over and the you know, the court is supposed to be contemplating its decision, which a lot of us were expecting in June. So the fact that they've, they're trying to reopen the case before a decision is out could delay things. Mm. So the court could decide to reject their motion and just issue its ruling, or the court could decide to accept their motion, which could mean the case drags on for another few months, creates more uncertainty. Um, so ultimately, this case, I think, is the most important case um, in terms of the future of this project because it is actually something that could overturn the government's approval of this project. Mm. Once the approval is overturned, the government has the option of going back and, and restarting consultations with the First Nations, but it might be enough of a delay to cause Kinder Morgan just to say, okay, we can't take this anymore. We right. can't wait anymore. We're, we're, we're walking and, right. and we're going to abandon the project. Great. So we have one minute left uh, and we haven't got to uh, sort of the reaction. Is there any little piece that's been most interesting to you about this? Or, or uh, Unfortunately, I only have one minute. Yeah. Cause this <laughs> it's been a lot. Um, there, you know, there, there's been a lot of, uh, a lot of commentary. Uh, you know, certainly we've seen calls from, from some First Nations for public inquiry. There's been some angry reaction too. Um, for the first time in in in, in my career, um, we received a threat um, oh. that that mentioned our our Ottawa address. Um, serious enough. It was vague that it didn't it didn't say what what whoever sent it was going to do. Mm. But serious enough that that we called police and and had a file opened. Wow. Okay. So, so that's that's that is big. That's a yeah. great place to leave the show. Right. Yeah. Why not? There you go. The, the happiest so, way to end this. Uh, a reminder: hard journalist Mike D'Souza in this studio. If you want breaking news, particularly on this uh, issue, uh, there is no better person to follow right now. So you can find Mike at uh, at Mike D'Souza, uh, M I K E D E. 
S-O-U-Z-A. You'll also find links to this information on our website. Uh, also look him up at the National Observer. Thank you so much for joining us, Mike. You're doing a great job. Keep up the good work. Uh, and other than that, we got to go. So check yeah. out greenmajority.ca for all the details. Thank you so much for listening. Thanks to the techs and the volunteers and for Stefan for running today's show. Of course, our guest uh, and you, the listener, have a good green week, folks, and we'll see you all real soon.